You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Mark. Hi, I'm Simon. And uh, we've got a couple of emails since the last episode, so let's get right on and read the emails. Cool. We've got, uh, well, we've got a short one from Richard Hugh Parkin, who says, brilliant podcast this week and a great topic. And he was talking about the one where we talked about our childhood memories of the program. Mm -hmm. And he says, my first and strongest memory of Doctor Who was as a three-year-old watching City of Death. Specifically, I can remember the moment Julian Glover removed his face to reveal the single bug eye of Scaroth. <laughs> I remember this especially as my parents had a shopping bag made from an old fishing net, which I would <laughs> which I would put over my head and pull so tight that when I removed it, my face was streaked and lumpy, <laughs> just like Scaroth. <laughs> Not that I would recommend this to any three-year-olds out there. How inventive. I like yeah. it, it's good. Not just inventive, but also slightly worrying. (laughs) It's funny that he says that when he removed it, his face was streaked and lumpy, just like Scaroth. But he gives no reason for why he would pull it so tight over his head in the first place. Which presumably wasn't to make him look like Scaroth, as he didn't know he looked like Scaroth until after he'd done it. He'd probably look more like Pinhead from Hellraiser, wouldn't he? Do you think you'd know about that? No, no, not at the time, obviously. (laughs) Richard Hugh Parkin, you are a very worrying man. But thank you for the feedback anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, you've got to email us back now and tell us why I'm, you were I'm with this... you on the Scaroff thing. I'm, I'm, I'm with him. Well, you like... Mm. Yes, because that was a great cliffhanger when you were... And because I was a bit older, I thought it was a bit naff. But obviously now I love it. <laughs> it's City of Death. Everybody loves Absolutely. City of Death. You've got to. Well, Gary Davison, who we had one from a couple of weeks ago... He's written a couple more, and Gary's stuff, I think, is always worth reading out, so we're going to spend five minutes listening to Gary now. Ideal. Okay, his first one is again about... Oh, no, his first one's about the Marmite episode. He says, like the Marmite episode, they thought you'd go on to other love and hate topics, and then he names some from the new series, Rose, Martha, Donna, Kissing in the TARDIS. <clears throat> to be honest, though... The new series, that's a real Marmite thing, full stop, isn't it? It is. Mm. I mean, you've got so many people who love it and love all of it, Mm. but you've got just as many people who hate it and hate all of it. Absolutely. Or at least sort of vocally (laughs) on on forums and that, which is, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I suppose you could do a whole episode just about the love-hate relationship with the new series, really. Yeah. We're a little bit sceptical of that subject, aren't we? As well, to whether to touch it or not, really. Oh, fans. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, getting into fans and fans love and hate is a bit of a hot topic. Yeah. I'm sure we will at some point. <laughs> but the thing is, of course, you know, it's only like the tiniest, tiniest fraction of a percentage of fans who get that vocal about it. Mm. Just that they're the ones you tend to notice. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is probably the same in all things. A bit like football fans. <clears throat> oh, absolutely. And probably a bit like EastEnders fans as well, I should imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Not it's that got, I would know. I suppose it has got fans, yeah. Oh, well, anything that's on telly that gets that many viewers is going to have people who are vocal about it. Yeah. On, uh, you know... The ones who think it's real. Yeah, yeah. And they all go on, uh, what's it called? Walford? Walford Base? Oh, really? No, I'm kidding! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Gary carries on and says, Another idea for a discussion occurred to me. And this is going, well, we actually covered this. Since he wrote the email, we did an episode, but before we got the email, since he heard the episode that he was replying to. That's all we actually a bit timey Yeah, it is. But we actually covered all this in an episode, what was it, last week or a couple of weeks ago? Some, sometime recently. The memory cheats. He says, an idea for another discussion occurred to me. Why is it always aliens? Since the Time Warrior, there has not been an historical story that he can think of. Black Orchid would actually be the only one. Mm where the events were not influenced by extraterrestrials. And this has gone to extremes in New Who. Well, I mean, he makes these points, and I think we answered them. Yeah, in, yeah. I'm in agreement. Uh, yeah, mm. I, but I do think we answered them in... But I shall read out the points he made anyway, because why not? Why can't the Gelf really be ghosts? Does the Unicorn and the Wasp really, really need the Vespa form, or couldn't it just be a murder mystery, like Black Orchid? Mm. Uh, why couldn't the vampires of Venice really be vampires? How much better would Vincent and the Doctor be without the invisible alien turkey thing? Now, there you go. <laughs> Definitive answer. It's not mm. a chicken thing. It's a turkey thing. It's a space chicken. Everyone knows that. And did Peter it's Kay... It's a spicken. <laughs> oh, no. I don't want to get into that. A spurky. <laughs> don't mention cockerels. Did He says, did Peter Kay need to be the absorber off too to be a threat in the otherwise glorious Love and Monsters? And actually, that is a fair point. Mm, but absolutely. having said that, of course, we covered that as well because it was the, you know, it was the designer monster thing, wasn't it? He says, now, none of these episodes are terrible, except maybe the Vampires of Venice, and even that has bits I love. And the other new who historicals, The Girl in the Fireplace, Human Nature, Shakespeare Code, even Victory of the Daleks with its Daleks versus Spitfires and what's not to love about that sequence, are great, but in all of time and space, shouldn't there be more than just aliens? Mm. And that's true. I, th I think it'd be really nice if Doctor Who were to do a story where there was... No alien involvement whatsoever. No, no. just a you straight don't think drama. No, no, I think no, because I think that's what I said in the historical yeah. episode we did. Yeah, was I think that would be just great. for once. But I just at the moment, I just don't think they can. No, and when I say they can't, I don't think they're really allowed to, as it were. I think it's a ratings thing. Yeah, I think they're under sort of. I mean, obviously, people like Stephen Moffat and Russell T Davis have got a lot of leeway with what they do. But I think they have been told in no uncertain terms, keep up the monster count, keep up that sort of thing. It's funny, I think the Pirates episode could have been the opportunity to, to do it. Yeah. It? I suppose yeah, I you're right, yeah. And that was that was one of the ones where I was a little bit disappointed that it, it went that way. Hmm. <clears throat> they always always do, though. I think you've just got to... See, that's the thing about Doctor Who at the moment. Because it was off the air for so many years, 
I'm just happy to see it. Yeah. And as long as it stays good, and it is good, very, very good, Mm. and as long as it stays that good, I don't mind that there are certain things missing. When Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who came on, and it was something like a season and a half before we even saw an alien planet, Mm. and everybody was moaning, we're not seeing alien planets, we need alien planets. And I was thinking, no, just as long as Doctor Who's good, I can live without seeing the alien planet. An alien planet would be nice, but I don't need it. I just need the program to be good. Yeah, yeah. And it was, so I was quite happy on that count. And then, you know, the impossible planet came along and I did a little wee. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do? Did a little wee. Okay. Oh, and Gary actually puts a PS at the end. Hope you like the Deviant Art page because in his first email, and I forgot to read this out, but if you go onto our Facebook page, Blue Box Podcast, you'll see a link to this as well. But he is one of the people who uploads his Doctor Who art to this website called Deviant Art. I've got a page. You have too. Simon's got a page as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I think this could get very worse. competitive. <laughs> I mean, so, no, no, because three um, of my friends are. This gentleman's uh, uh, a bit of a demon with a Photoshop. It was very good. The that's, one I saw on the Facebook page was yeah. very good, yeah. Yeah, I know. I've I been don't know exactly how he does it, but it looks like his Photoshop work. So, yeah, but really nice. I imagine done. a lot of the ones in there. To, yeah, I went on and I had a look at quite a few of his pictures and some of them are really nice. So I'd recommend anybody. Well, you can find him as Gazatrek, which is G-A-Z-Z-A-T-R-E-K, uh, com, or just find our Facebook page and there's a link there. But yeah, it's well worth checking out. Am I right in saying that to get onto DeviantArt, you have to have a certain level of quality anyway? Or... No, no, oh, no. I know anybody can do it. Open to all, yeah. And oh, is it? It's really good because... Because the only ones get... I've seen on there have been brilliant. Yeah, constructive criticism, so everyone has a go on there. It's really oh, good. Oh, right, that's nice. It's a nice forum. Right, anyway, shortly after that, we had another email from Gary, which I also think is worth reading out because this was in reply to our... Childhood Memories episode. Just caught up with the Us episode. Unfortunately, I'm actually older than you, born in 1966. But like you guys, I have snapshot memories of stories. Distinct memory of the discovery of the invisible Dalek in Planet of the Daleks. Back to that one again. Ah, you see. That that story is so reviled among so many fans. (laughs) And most people just think it's a bit crap, even if they like it. But it has such potent memories for the people who saw it on the first... Again, it's that Target novel, The Exploding yeah. Dalek. It's really... No, that's Death to the Daleks. This is Planet is of the Daleks. Oh, Planet of the Daleks. Sorry, yes. Sorry. Oh, oh my no, God. The, Public oh, Target, part. Death to the Daleks cover. Best cover of any Target book ever. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad there's... Or Terror one. of the Ortons. Oh, the, the second one. Or even the first one. The, well, the realistic-looking one, the one yeah, with the big eye. Yeah, that was the second Terror of the Ortons. Oh, right, one. yeah. Yeah. But no... um. I'm glad to see that on the DVD cover for Death to the Daleks, which is out, well, actually, by the time this podcast goes out, it'll only be a couple of weeks away, I think. Mm -hmm. But that kind of references the Target cover. Uh, Is that one of those Chris Achilles ones? The Target cover? Mm. Oh, God. I don't think it is. No, I don't think so. He was very good, wasn't he? Oh, amazing. I think it's somebody else entirely. Mm. I'm not sure. It could be. Somebody write in and tell us at blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. There was a, there was a period when I was doing my artwork, I was trying to mimic Chris Achilles and the amount of technical pens I went through just mm. doing all the dots. Yeah, it's really <laughs> impressive. Yeah, really cool. Very striking. Oh yeah, of course. But it's definitely not one of his. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Gary goes on to say some of his other early memories, and I love early memories, so I'm quite happy to sit here reading these out. Um, 
someone's hand glowing green in the green death and Link's removing his helmet in the Time Warrior. But his first proper memory is the T-Rex in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. He recalls watching religiously from that point onwards. I mean, dinosaurs and Doctor Who, he says, what is there not for an eight-year-old to love? I know, yeah. But as he points out, that we pointed out, the memory does cheat. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly on that story. And then this is rather nice. He says, I always used to watch at my grandparents as my mother worked on a Saturday. So being there, a cup of tea, a slice of Battenberg cake and running to hide when my grandfather started chanting, Om, 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 Polly, Om. (laughs) Along with the monks to make the giant spider appear are vivid childhood memories and probably also accounts for his lifelong fear of spiders. That poor kid. He must have been having nightmares. Oh no, that sounds great. I love <laughs> I love this kind of thing, people's memories. Well, that's what my whole book was about, wasn't it? He then says... <laughs> oh, I've got to get it in You're there. You're really shoehorning <laughs> them into the there, radio show now, seriously. <laughs> have you got a book out, JR? He then carries on to say, <laughs> I then remember watching regularly and faithfully from seasons 12 to 15... But then again, for some reason, from season 17 to 21, and he's no idea why he doesn't remember season 16, but he distinctly remembers Romana's regeneration scene at the start of season 17. So he wonders if perhaps he missed season 16 because he just couldn't get his head around the fact that it was going to be a season-long story arc. Season 16, of course, being the key to time. Mm -hmm. The lovely Mary Tam. (sighs) Uh, I'm more of a Lalawood. Did I expel air? As long as it's only air that you expelled. (laughs) I never really took to Colin Baker's doctor, says Gary. His post-regeneration behaviour towards both Perry, ah, Perry, he says, and his attitude to his predecessor, sweet, effete, he remembers jarred him. And although he remembers watching bits and pieces, it felt like the start of the end for him and the arrival of Sylvester McCoy did little to improve his view. Mm-hmm. Although he enjoys at least some of his stories today, yes. which I think is a lesson for us all. Mm. Well, I think, back. actually, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, I think, Simon, you had a bit of a um, a revisitation of McCoy, didn't you? After Didn't you decide you were going to watch uh, Ghostlight again? I watched Ghostlight, yeah. And and have you got any... I thought it was great. I didn't find it anywhere near as confusing as everyone seems oh, there to you think. Are, it. I, see. I think once you I think understand, it was the original cut as well. I think once you understand what control is there for, yeah. it's mm. really simple. Mm. Yeah, but I think it's just on the first view, and nobody understood it's, what control was doing there. It's, it's the same with most of the McCoy. The ideas are there. It's how they tie together. Yeah, isn't it? quite. Mm. And we'll get on to that in a couple mm. of seconds. But we'll just get to the end of Gary's email mm. first. Um, the inclusion of the likes of Bonnie Langford, Nicholas Parsons, Ken Dodd, and finally Halen Pace marked the show's decline into the realms of light entertainment and it being a shadow of its former self, especially when contrasted with the likes of Star Trek The Next Generation being shown on BBC Two at around the same time. Yeah. He says Trek more than filled the sci-fi void, while shows like The X-Files and Babylon 5 pushed the bar even higher. So by the time Love the TV... The X-Files. Mm. Great. No, I never was a fan of that. No? No, I just don't like the way Americans do... It started do. well. See, I didn't even like Babylon 5 or Firefly. Oh, I hated or Babylon 5. I never watched it, so I must admit, I don't oh. know. I mean, I could appreciate what they were doing. It's just something about the way the Americans do sci-fi that mm. just doesn't agree with me. Oh, even things like the middle seasons great. of Next Generation were great, though. Really good. Mm. Oh, really? Really I good. Never, I never did Star Trek. They did a lot of... Yeah. 
It was just it's but, just too much. A lot of military. timey-wimey stuff going on as well. A lot of the sci-fi is based around groups, and I mean, you look at Babylon Five, and it's set on a sort of diplomatic space station. Mm. It's all about the military, and I didn't I didn't understand there's all these other arcs going on underneath, but there's just so much authority on display. Oh yeah, and I kind of like the sort of I don't even like anti-authority like you get in say Firefly or Blake Seven. I like the you know complete. Um, absence of authority like you get in Doctor Who. Mm, mm. In Doctor, I mean, okay, in Doctor Who you did have unit for a while, but I just so much preferred the fact that you don't have authority figures to either look towards or look away from. You just It's just people. Mm. I think I know quite a few people who like Doctor Who but don't really watch sci-fi. Well, I'm one of them. Other than yeah. Doctor Who, yeah. I mean, obviously Strange, I've sampled things, it? otherwise mm. I wouldn't have been able to talk about them just then. But No, but but I am one of them, really. Mm. I don't. Sci-fi is not a thing with me. It tends to suggest it is more fantasy than sci-fi. Oh, I definitely think so. Mm. This is a subject for another. There's more. In, yeah. it's, it has more to do more in common with C.S. Lewis than. Well, I did a whole article about how much more Doctor Who has in common with Lewis. All right. Than it oh, really? does. Honestly. With, yeah, I did. Than it does. Listeners, with, you know, other we, didn't, shows. <laughs> we didn't set that up. That is. That is Genuine. Genuine. I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah, there's me shoehorning in all these references to things I've been doing. and I hadn't noticed that. Pull it out the back. How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure that was for Starburst, though. It might have been somewhere or something else. Anyway, we're nearly at the end of Gary's email, so let's finish him off. So by the time... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we... So Mary by the Tan time Perry, no. So by the time the TV movie arrived in '96, he says my expectations were perhaps too high, but I still love McGann's 90 minutes despite the flaws. And that's about it. I'm with him all the way. Yeah, yeah. I like Paul McGann. I think he needs another trip in the TARDIS. Oh, I like Gary. I think his emails come up with a lot of good sense. And they're just so nice to read. Yeah, well, thank you very much for writing in. We appreciate it. Yeah, and more people write in with more emails. Mm. Why not? <laughs> so going back to what we were saying just now about the McCoy era and sometimes the ideas being there but not the explanations on screen. Mm. Right, when we did the McCoy episode, which was, I think, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. we had been promising that we were going to talk about the cliffhanger, <laughs> that cliffhanger <laughs> from oh, Dragonfire. And try... Uh, because... Some pe- a lot of people listening will know the story Dragonfire, but mm-hmm. will perhaps not understand what that cliffhanger was all about because mm-hmm. it obviously didn't work. And, you know, everybody always brings that one up. But obviously there was a reason. I mean, for those of you who don't know Dragonfire, at the end of the first episode, Sylvester McCoy basically just throws himself off a cliff for no apparent reason. <laughs> he doesn't, he climbs over. He, gen- he really. very gingerly climbs off the side <laughs> of the cliff and, and then, then hangs on by his umbrella and then yeah. slides down it. And you, you just think, no, oh, God, no, why? It's why? Like, yeah, it's like Liz Slade and falling down the, um, oh, yeah. the, the embankment in the Five Doctors, except... <laughs> he's yeah. slight incline. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely stylish compared to... <laughs> oh no! Climbing over the the, side. Oh no, though I think the the five doctors one is much worse. <laughs> Was that it's actually, funnier? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I, I've not seen the five doctors as divided into four parts. 
because it was broadcast no in four episodes once, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure actually, they didn't have. Oh, they actually, didn't have that as that a cliffhanger. Was, was that cliffhanger. I think that was the second cliffhanger. I, think I could it was. be wrong, but I, I think it was slight incline hanger. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back onto the subject of Dragonfire. Yeah. You know, I promised that I, and a lot of you listening will know this, but a lot of you listening won't, that I would talk about, or that we would talk about, mm. what was supposed to have happened in that cliffhanger. Yeah, because I don't know. Well, the idea was, the Doctor is in these ice caves, searching for this treasure that's hidden within this mysterious dragon creature. And... You know, the Doctor and his companions, they've split up and gone off in different directions and they're all going down these caves. And the Doctor's been following this ledge for what is supposed to be maybe a mile or a couple of miles. Mm. And then the ledge thins out and there's nowhere else for him to go. And the thing is, he would then have a two-mile walk back to where he started from to go off in another direction. Or he notices there's another ledge just a few feet, so it appears to him, Mm-hmm. further down and decides to climb down to it well then he realizes as he's climbing down that it's a bit he's further away it. yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit further away than he thought and actually he's climbing down a slippery ledge a sheer face mm. right you know in an ice cave and all of a sudden he's in peril that was what was supposed to happen <laughs> why did they think that yeah. would never work well <laughs> Did this the budget the run out or something? Was that the reason? No, there was just a bit of naivety involved, wasn't there? Oh, I mean, yeah. this guy who just... wrote it, it was his first script. Hmm. The guy who was directing it, who's actually gone on to, you know, bigger and better things, hmm. Chris Clough, who's actually quite a well-known name in television these days. Hmm. I mean, he's obviously no idiot, but this, again, was early in his career. I think it's just one of those things. Yes, they probably ran out of money in studio time. Hmm. All it needed was for somebody to say, look, if we just get Sylvester... Do one line to himself as he makes the decision yeah, to right. climb. To I'm the sure other. I can make it, or or just, uh, or oh, just. Sh- oh, should have done that. Well, no, no, just to explain. <laughs> yeah, something like, oh God, it's too far to go back. What if I just climb down there? And then you see him getting into trouble. Okay, as he's trying nice to climb down. Oh, not as tall as I used to be. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anything, that would have been something. that would have been good. <laughs> All he would have needed was for somebody to say, "Look, if you just see him on the edge of this." Nobody's going to be able to realise what it's supposed to be. But, you know, I think there were just... It was... Doctor Who was particularly on a low budget at the time. Mm-hmm. I think they were just trying to get it in the can. In the script, on the page, that obviously worked. You could tell what was supposed to be happening. Mm. And in the director's head... Because this is the thing. When you are in the middle of something like that and you know what it's supposed to represent, you see what it represents yeah. on your mm-hmm. screen in front of you. And you don't necessarily see that to somebody who doesn't know what it's supposed to represent, it might not be as clear as it seems to you. Mm. So the director's obviously, you know, going for it, trying to get the episode wrapped before 10 o'clock or whatever. Yeah. And the writer's probably not even in the room because, you know, writers don't tend to be on set. So, you know, producer's probably in the same boat as the director. But just it's one of those things where nobody realised that it wasn't going to work for the audience at home. Mm. And they got it in the can. Yeah, they got it in the can, and they probably thought, great, because that was, you know, Doctor Who being a bit meta. It was a literal cliffhanger, and you don't actually get many of those. No. (laughs) So they probably thought, oh, wow, we're being really clever. We've got something really great here. remind me, what happens in the next episode? Does he just manage to climb back up? Yeah, uh, does, no, he doesn't go up. He does go now. down. He does go down. I think right. so, yeah. No, Glitz turns up, doesn't he? 
Oh, does he? All oh, right. Yeah, Glitz turns up, climbs down the doctor, and then <clears throat> by the time Glitz is hanging off the doctor's shoes, <clears throat> he's close enough to the ledge to get safely onto the ledge, and then he helps the doctor down onto the ledge. Right. I think, I'm pretty sure. It's been a while, though. <laughs> I got the ace box, and I still haven't got it out. <laughs> and yet, I do like those two stories. I don't mind it. It's just the cliffhanger was yeah. pants. A lot of people have trouble with Dragonfire because it is quite meta. It's filled with sort of references and in-jokes and stuff like that. But I still, I wouldn't say it's brilliant. And I said this before when we talked about Sylvester McCoy. It does suffer from being an over-eager script writer who just mm. wants to show off how clever he is. Mm. But the fact is, he is quite clever. He's not completely stupid. No, no. So, I, you know, it's just something about Dragonfire that I find rather watchable. I enjoy it. And it's got some iconic moments in it there when the guy's oh, face melts. That's yeah, that is pretty stunning. Yeah, yeah. yeah and there are other good things in there, else. even mm. though it's on a low budget. I think the bit where the dragon's head opens up to reveal, you know, this treasure that they've all been looking for. Mm-hmm. I think that's quite. It doesn't look great on screen, but it's. If you were six, you probably wouldn't notice that it didn't look great on screen, and you yeah. would have thought, "Wow, what an amazing sort of turn of events!" Mm-hmm. Right, though, because we uh, have talked about this cliffhanger. And because we knew we were going to be talking about it, I thought we would do an episode on cliffhangers. Oh, <laughs> your pocket's making funny noises. My, yes. Right, an episode. <laughs> so many more. Yes. Yeah, so we've, we've gone nearly halfway through the episode, actually. Oh, have we? Yeah. That's all right. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm getting... Are you telling me off? Mark, I'm, re- I'm enjoying your new sofas. I keep putting my feet up. <laughs> How rude is that? Not that is we're it... not recording in a proper studio. Or no, anything. no, that's, that's right. We're, um, Simon's just making that up. We're actually but Simon... Studio, yeah. No, oh, we've got Simon. sofas, so when it gets really scary, I can hide behind them. <laughs> yeah, we've got cushions and everything. Previously, we used to do it sitting around in a circle on the floor, cross-legged. <laughs> yeah. Talking of scary... Go on. There's only three of us. Yeah, oh, yeah, where's well, Lee? Well, Lee is uh, back in the box with Stephen Moffat this week. For those of you who are not regular listeners, you perhaps won't be aware that a few weeks ago we did an episode about timey-wimey. And what we thought would be a great idea would be if we went back to 2005 and picked up Stephen Moffat before he wrote any of his Doctor Whos so that he could come and listen to us talking about his Doctor Whos on a radio show and then go back to 2005 and actually write those episodes so he'd know what to write. But here's the thing. We enjoyed having him in the box in the corner of the room so much. We haven't actually taken him back to 2005 yet. And every now and again, Lee likes to spend a little time with Stephen in the box. (laughs) And that's where he is this week, folks. He's in the box. Although we have actually managed to punch a hole through the top. So Lee might be able to make a contribution to tonight's show. But if he does, he'll probably sound a little squeaky. So don't be surprised if he doesn't sound like Lee this week. I've noticed when I've heard him talking, you can overhear what they're saying sometimes. He does sound, it's almost like he sounds a bit Welsh. Would you agree? I don't know. Shall we see if we can get... Lee, will you tell us what your favourite cliffhanger is? My name is Lee, and these are my favourite cliffhangers. My first choice is from the dead planet. Great acting involved, and to wait a week to see why she was screaming was a masterstroke. Well, thanks for that, Lee. That was... uh... (laughs) Absolutely wonderful. What's going on there? Actually, that's good, though, because I quite wanted to sort of do the cliff... Instead of sort of trying to get each of the five or four of us in order to say our top choices of cliffhangers, mm. we were going to go through our favourite cliffhangers and sort of try and say why we think they work and how they work and what we like about them so mm-hmm. much. Mm. 
Because that's the thing about Doctor Who, one of its most sort of brought up talking points is the cliffhangers. Mm -hmm. And obviously the classic series, you had cliffhangers on a weekly basis, which you don't get anymore. But you still do have cliffhangers in the new series. And because you have less of them in the new series, I would say they probably put more effort into them, which I don't think always necessarily makes for a great cliffhanger, because sometimes I think they perhaps put a bit too much effort into them. Mm. But occasionally, when they get them right, they really, really get them right. But it's a strange thing with the cliffhangers now, isn't it? Because when you've got so many standalone stories now, it's not, it's well, not quite they, the same dynamic, is it? Well, then a great example of what I was saying is the first cliffhanger in the first two-part story, Aliens of London, and the cliffhanger mm. at the end. You know, one uh, a twenty-five-minute classic series four-part story would have ended up with a cliffhanger of the Slitheen revealing itself and attacking somebody. Mm-hmm. But because this was the first cliffhanger of the new series, they didn't have one Slitheen revealing itself and attacking somebody. They didn't have two Slitheen revealing themselves and attacking somebody. They had three Slitheens revealing themselves. They had the same cliffhanger three times over. You know, multiple Jeopardy yeah. is not a bad cliffhanger to do. Mm-hmm. But when it's the same Jeopardy, just repeated three yeah. times over, it doesn't work quite so well. I was thinking it was still, on a certain kind of a level, a good cliffhanger, mm-hmm. because you did have the reveal of the monster, and the monster, and you did have the, <laughs> and you did have the Jeopardy. That was a bit Cliff Richard. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. God. <laughs> you know, we moved house when I was 11, and the house that we moved into had been completely cleared of all furniture as you would expect. So it's a completely empty house, apart from they had left a wardrobe. <laughs> oh, my okay, God. Which is <laughs> fairly random. <laughs> yeah. They had left a wardrobe. And, of course, it was completely cleared also of all the sort of trappings and the trivia of a human life. So there weren't, you know, like there wasn't a packet of crayons in the corner or whatever. But the people who had left the house had not only left a wardrobe, they had also left a... Uh, a four-sized poster from, uh, you know, one of these magazines back in... What was it? Looking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. An A4 poster from Looking of Cliff Richard on the wardrobe. So he was still in the closet. Oh, my God. I have to say, Cliff Richard has haunted me the entire rest of my life. I just... There's something about that Was he hanging? Was he hanging in the wardrobe? He was tacked up and on the wardrobe, not in the wardrobe. He was a cliffhanger. (laughs) Oh, Oh, Lord. I can't believe we missed that. Anyway. Insert tumweed sound right now. <laughs> Just, <yeah. laughs> Should we get back on the subject Weird. of cliffhangers? Yeah, please. Right. Oh, I was talking about the new series cliffhangers. The first series is a great example of three things. First cliffhanger, a great example of how to overdo your cliffhanger. The mm. one from Aliens of London. Second cliffhanger, the one from The Empty Child, the Stephen Moffat one. Cliffhanger itself is actually a bit similar to the one in Aliens of London. It's Mm. multiple Jeopardy, and Mm. it's the same Jeopardy. But that's a great example of how you come in at the start of the next episode and get out of your cliffhanger in a really surprising, unusual, but perfectly pitched way. Mm. Go to your room. Mm. And not only that, not only is it a great way to get out of the cliffhanger, but it also leads to a twist 15 minutes later in the same episode. Brilliant piece of writing. Fantastic. Mm. But the third cliffhanger in that first series, the one in Bad Wolf, 
that's the one I'd like to nominate as one of my top five cliffhangers. It's yeah. very good. Yeah. It is something that seems so obvious retrospectively, but something that is done so rarely because it's just not what you'd expect a cliffhanger to be. Instead of cliffhangering on the jeopardy, you cliffhanger on the doctor's promise yes. to remove yeah. the jeopardy. It's not the Daleks have got Rose. It's the doctor saying, Rose, I'm coming to get you. Mm. It's brilliant. Mm. It has the jeopardy. The jeopardy's all there. But it also ratchets up the excitement. And a great yeah, little exactly. speech. And, and it links in with what I was going to say. There's one thing worse than a bad cliffhanger, which is a cliffhanger being resolved badly. Mm, yeah. Yes. And that resolves incredibly oh. well. It's yeah. in there, isn't it? Oh, the um, first two minutes in the next episode are just stunning television. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, fantastic. Anyway, that's what I wanted to nominate for the new series. I mean, does anybody want to, or should we go back to the classic series? Anything well, you'd like to bring new up? new series ones for me, one of the best, go was on. Utopia. Yeah, yeah. That was oh, yes, of course. Awesome. Yeah. From the moment, you get like about but, ten minutes before the end. But having said that, it's not the cliffhanger itself that's awesome. It's what happens just before the yeah, cliffhanger, isn't it? Yeah, I would admit, yes, true. Yeah, it's, where it, it's where it leave, leaves the viewer, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. It leaves you hanging. It, it's, yeah. yeah. From the moment he opens the watch and he just transforms and it's, ah, oh, brilliant. Hairs yeah. on the back of your neck. Yeah, it's just a shame that he couldn't have been in it for a bit longer. Well, yeah. Do you know what? I really wish that they would have thought, given that Doctor Who is a programme about time travel, mm. To go back and do a story further back in the Derek Jacobi Master's timeline. Mm. Because if you did a story with Derek Jacobi as the Master before he did the Chameleon Arch thing and turned himself into a human, mm. yeah. then his memory of that would be wiped. So, uh, because yeah, what I'm saying true. is the yeah. reason why they couldn't go back is because he would remember it having happened yeah. when next he met the Doctor. Yeah. Hadn't he actually grown old? In that yeah, incarnation, isn't that probably, the whole idea that he yeah. pretty much I lived think a life? Have gotten it's away implied, with it. isn't it? Yeah. I think you could have gotten away with it if you'd have wanted fantastic. to. I, I, I like it. I like the fact that he's literally lived a life in that. Oh persona. yeah, no, mm. I'm not saying that. Mm. What I mean is, I think you could have gotten away with doing a story with him again yeah. if you wanted Derek Jacobi to be the master enough mm. for a whole episode or a whole story. I think that's a piece of continuity that you could just sort of quietly brush under the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like the series doesn't do that all the time anyway. No. But then we get John Sim. Oh, John Sim's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. He's great. I, you know, can't fault John Sim. Just would have liked to have seen another Better in his second appearance, in. I think. Do you think? Yeah, yeah. I like him both times, actually. I I liked him in that first one. I have a bit of a soft yeah, spot for that story. I think he got more into the swing in the second lot. It's a bit more... He was playing him darker and yeah. madder. Yes. I quite like the the sort of unhingedness the first time. Yeah, know. yeah, it's true. I could, but you know, again, this is another thing that people complained about. He wasn't suave and sophisticated like the master's supposed to be. But you know, every time the doctor regenerates, he changes as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's no reason why the master should always. Have he to wasn't be the particularly same. suave in the Deadly Assassin or in Keeper of Dragon. No, he wasn't. <laughs> no, quite. And I'm sure there's plenty of room for and. Let's be honest, it wasn't very suave in the TV movie either. I always dress for the occasion. <laughs> Is that a quote of, from the TV movie? Was just was. Yeah, just, you, know. you can't say things like that on a podcast, Mark. Nobody can see we're dressed in. Feels uh, bad about my that's jokes, lucky no. for the listeners. He's wearing knee-high pink socks. <laughs> 
Justin Kerr. And you can see a picture of him on our Facebook page too, so you can imagine what he looks like. Just in because you don't socks. have the legs to carry it off, JR. Oh. <laughs> right, Lee mentioned the dead planet. Oh, I yeah, think we should yeah. go back, because obviously the classic series is where the majority of the cliffhangers lie. Mm-hmm. I think we should go back and just pull out one or two. Well, I was going to nominate second Dalek story. Dalek Invasion of Earth. The Dalek coming out of the Thames. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Iconic. I realised that when I made my little list is most of them are, it's iconic imagery. Yeah. Yes. More than anything and that's the thing that sticks with me. Mm. That's very true actually. You, you know, your cliffhanger can be as scary as you like and put as many characters in peril as you like but unless there's something about the cliffhanger that resides in your visual memory mm. then it's not going to stay with you as well as Something that might even be a little bit crap. And that, and that actually harks really... back to the Scaroff thing as well. As far as I know, for yeah, you, yeah, yeah. At your age, it was naff. But yeah, no, but that's... at my age, it was brilliant. You know, yeah, I can imagine. In fact, we haven't really mentioned the cliffhanger that Lee brought up, the Dead Planet. No, because obviously that was a case of don't show. Yeah, and that was what was so brilliant about that cliffhanger mm. that they didn't show the Dalek. They just gave you a hint of something that patently wasn't human. Mm. Mm. Very Same. well done. Actually, it is. And she was brilliant. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't but, think I don't think anyone else does fear of a Dalek in quite the same way, do they? No. I think Wasn't long... it also? Did I read somewhere? This could be completely wrong, but didn't they have to show it in that way because they hadn't actually finished building the Dalek prop at that oh, point? It could be right. I could think I read right. that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Although, to be honest, the version that we saw was a re-recording of that episode that was actually made about three weeks into, three or four weeks into recording. So at the time that episode was recorded, they'd actually Mm. recorded episode two and episode three as well. All right, okay. So they could Urban myth, maybe. Yeah, so they could have changed. If that had indeed been the case the first time they recorded Mm. that episode, they could easily have changed their minds and decided to show it anyway. I'm glad they they didn't. If they had the choice that they kept it that way, because I think it's a... Like you say, it's a great cliffhanger. Mm. Oh, it's astonishing. Mm. And it, uh, to me, it harkens back to the very first cliffhanger where the TARDIS lands in the desert and a shadow falls across it. Yeah. Something that looks as if it probably human, but you can't quite tell. Mm. And you don't know if you're on an alien world or, yeah. you know, in the desert or long in the past or way in the future. You just don't know. And that's the cliffhanger. Mm. Not the scare, but the mystery. And yes, that's exactly what makes the cliffhanger in The Dead Planet so brilliant as well. The mystery, something so terrifying that Barbara's absolutely screaming her lungs out. It's terrifying the Doctor's companion who's become separated from everybody else and you don't know what it is. It's brilliant. Mm. Right, are we going to move on then? Because as you said, we are uh, running out of time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're not. We can talk for as long as we like, can't we? Yeah. Oh, I didn't mention, actually, we went... I didn't mention our favourite cliffhangers in uh, The Time Meddler because we talked about that, didn't we? We we did to quite a, quite a bit. Yeah, we mentioned it in the Yeah, we did. Episode, we talked about it. Yeah. So, yeah. so let's move on. Let's go to uh, Patrick Troughton. Mm-hmm. I know. Both of you two have nominated the first episode of The Mind Robber. Yeah. Now, Mark, in a nutshell... Yes. Can you explain to me exactly what it is about the bottom. episode? Bottom. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you, Simon. <laughs> shiny bottom. <laughs> is it Zoe's shiny <laughs> bottom that you so like? Mark? Well, there is there is the four factor in that 
particular episode. But when you say the four factor, do you mm. mean the four? Exactly. Factor. Yeah, that's what I'm talking Hello. about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot to like in that. Well, <laughs> not too much to like, just the no. right amount to like. <laughs> but um, back to being serious for a moment. I don't know they'll last very long. <laughs> yeah, just seeing this TARDIS. You the can TARDIS, try. Yeah, you seeing, can try. Yeah, I can try. Seeing the TARDIS explode. You can try. <laughs> seeing the TARDIS explode is, you know, when you see it for the first time. Actually, it's... seeing the TARDIS explode is a major shock. Mm. I, mean, I would say mm, so. Mm. Frontios, again, they tried that. Yeah. First episode of Frontios, mm-hmm. same cliffhanger, basically. Yeah, pretty TARDIS much. has disintegrated. And that, and um, you know, for children of a certain age, mm. the first episode of Frontios Cliffhanger with the TARDIS having disintegrated is still, and again, a major, major shock. Mm. Because, and again, with um, iconic imagery, the seeing the the hat stand, yeah, just sitting yeah. there was, and that's all that's left of the TARDIS, yeah, and that is, you know, pretty big because we are always being told how impregnable and indestructible the TARDIS is. Mm. So seeing it impregnated and destructed is uh, quite a major. Go on, you can anyway, laugh. Back to a joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking about. Yeah, but but, but that whole little sequence from um, mind uh, robber, the mind robber. Sorry. Uh, yes, I was distracted as well. <laughs> um, it it all of a sudden is very dreamlike from the off, isn't it? Oh yeah, to lead yeah, us yeah. Into the episode. Well, you and, know that episode. Zoe wasn't... scream as well. I found the first yeah. time I saw it, I found mm. that really quite disturbing. Yeah. Do you know, because uh, you're not as nerdy as we are, Simon, you know, and I say that in the <laughs> nicest possible way. <laughs> Do you realise that uh, there's no writer's credit on The Mind Robber and that is because that episode was originally not on that story? The oh, right. guy who wrote The Mind Robber did not write that episode. Oh, right, right. But what happened was the previous story had supposed to have been six. This is quite a long story, quite a lot of trivia involved in this, and it's quite an interesting story. But I'll, in a nutshell, was it the Dominators the one before? Yeah, the Dominators yeah. got mm. cut from six episodes to five, and so they needed to find one episode very quickly in a hurry, which didn't have any guest characters because they had no budget left over for that. So they literally appended the first episode of the Mind Robber onto the start of the story. Oh right. Yeah, I think the original plan was for the volcano at the end of the Dominators to explode the TARDIS, mm. and Mind Robber would have started with the TARDIS exploded. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if that had happened, we would never have seen Zoe's bottom. Happy accident. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite Patrick Trout and Cliffhanger, though, mm. is episode two of The War Games. Right. And this gets down to, and I spoke about this when I was talking about the mind robber a while back, whenever it was. But there's a reason for this. My favourite cliffhangers are always the ones that will pull the rug out from under the audience. It's not so much the jeopardy or the mystery, not so much the peril or the scare. But I really like a cliffhanger which makes you go back through the entire episode in your head and think to yourself... Have I really seen all the things I think I've seen? Or actually, have I been watching something else entirely? And episode two of the War Games, the Doctor and his companions have landed in the First World War and they spend two episodes running around a First World War location. Mm. And there's a bit of sort of alien mumbo-jumbo going on. But the impression you're given is that 
there are aliens at work in the First World War doing something nefarious. Mm. But they were actually in the First World War. Yeah. And then you get to the end of episode two, and the Doctor and his companions are in an ambulance with a couple other people. They drive through a bit of fog, and as they emerge from the other side of the fog, there's a bunch of bloody Romans in front of them. And that's when you realise that there's something much bigger yeah. than just aliens yeah. in World this War I going on. And, of course, when you know what the story's about, that's just so obvious. Yeah, That cliffhanger loses its power if you know how it's going to be resolved. Mm. But can you imagine watching that story on first viewing and having well, to I wait? Well, I can. I can. I remember watching it on first viewing. On, and not oh, knowing. Somebody lent it to me on VHS. and <clears throat> To this day, it's one of my favourite stories. Oh, it's a brilliant, brilliant story. Mm. The War Games, to me, shows what Doctor Who could have been like had it been an extended serial rather than a series of shorter serials. Because mm-hmm. the War Games stretches the concept out long enough to have, you know, if they'd extended it by another couple of weeks, it would have been a, a season by itself. We've talked previously about my Pertwee issues. Well, I was going to ask Lee for another one before we got on to uh, Pertwee. No, no, all I was going to say oh, was... Oh, go on, sorry, yeah. Part of my problem with that era is the fact that you have so many five and six parters and they seem to drag on. But I can watch the War Games, which is a huge, oh, huge yeah, story, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it never drags for me. It just it never gets boring. Great. It's yeah. just so much fun. Mm. And that cliffhanger is a real turning point because... I love the first two episodes. I love the idea of Doctor Who in World War One, and I think that would have worked for ten weeks by itself. Mm. But after that cliffhanger, it just gets madder and madder and funner and funner. Mm-hmm. It's mm. oh, I just I love <clears throat> th- that story. And if you're one of the people listening who doesn't know old Doctor Who very well, and if you think you can, um, you know, stomach four hours of black and white Doctor Who. The war game, seriously. Oh, is yeah. a... Episode a day. Watching yeah, I was going to say, I think yeah. I'd pace myself on it. It's great, but you I don't know if you want to watch it all in one go. That would be... Oh, I have. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there have been Sunday afternoons that I've devoted to the war games and just had so much fun just sitting there laughing it up. But yeah, no, that's uh, fair that's point. The amazing thing is that I watched that purely with the idea of watching a regeneration story because there's something about them, isn't there, that mm. you... Just out of interest, you know. Oh, just I don't know, they're a... all rubbish apart from that one. Yeah, um, but yeah. Uh, apart was... from the later new series. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just great. Anyway, before we move on to colour Doctor Who, shall we get another example of a good cliffhanger from yeah. Lee? Lee. Hello. My second choice is The Pyramids of Mars, part one. Bring Sutek's gift of death to all humanity. Sutek is such a great foe and his servant is equally nasty. I bring Sutek's gift of death to all humanity. There you go. This, <laughs> you can tell he's been spending too much time in the box with somebody who works on Doctor Who in Cardiff, can't mm, you? Yeah. So he spends time in the box with a Scottish guy and comes out with a Welsh accent. <laughs> because they're talking about Doctor Who that's filmed in Cardiff. Oh, I see. Right. I've got you. You really... I just said that and you completely missed it, didn't you, Simon? Yeah, I, I miss a lot. Right, well, that's enough from Lee for now. Let's move on. <laughs> Poor Lee. <clears throat> okay, let's move on to... Have any of us... Oh, yes, two of us have picked... I've got a list here in front of us of uh, the five cliffhangers that we all picked that we like the most. And, yes, a couple of us have picked ones from the Pertwee era, so why not? Let's move on to Pertwee. Mm. And the first one is Mark, who has picked Inferno, episode six. Yeah. And Fantastic. why have you picked Inferno episode six? 
Well, you better explain a little bit of the background mm, for people who yeah, don't know. If you've not seen this one... Um, it all takes place on an alternate... Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. Were you talking? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Charlie. You can let me talk. Go on. Surprisingly, even though I'm not a huge fan of Pertwee, this is one of the ones that I really like. It's, in a nutshell, he ends up getting transported to a sort of alternate version of Earth. When you say he, do you mean the cat's uncle or the doctor? I mean the doctor. Okay. And uh, everything's all gone a bit Pete Tong. The brigadier is now the brigade leader, and all the people that seem to be really good in the real world are now sort of evil nutjobs. Everybody has evil It's doubles. all very Star Trek mirror mirror. Yeah. yeah. And for those of you listening in America, Pete Tong is Cockney rhyming slang for pear-shaped. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, getting back to the cliffhanger, uh, yeah, it gets to the point where he's trapped in this alternate universe and there's going to be this huge explosion which is going to see the end of the planet and he can't get back to the TARDIS and it just finishes on the Doctor Who stings. It goes into the theme and you just think, how the hell is he going to get out of that? This actually, and almost everybody in this room apart from myself, hmm. is probably going to mention Caves of Androzani episode three. Oh, yeah. And in, well, no, maybe not Simon then. Simon's shaking his head. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. Thanks for backing me up. That's right. But it's one of Lee's favourites as well. It Although, is, actually, yeah. I think he nominates the other cliffhanger from that story. He does. There. I think yeah. he goes yeah. for the, uh, the but, one yeah. Squad. But uh, to me, that's those two cliffhangers work on the same thing. Mm. It's not the peril so much as it's the ratcheting up of the tension. Yeah. Mm. And it's the same in Androzani, episode mm. three. Mm. It's not necessarily where the episode finishes, but how it Yes. Builds it up to get there. Because mm. in the 80s, the 1980s, they had a big thing of emphasis on the cliffhangers. So that even if the peril in the cliffhanger wasn't particularly good, that um, where the acting would arch itself up to get there mm. and the way the music <clears throat> would do the same. Yeah. And Inferno is probably the first great example of that, yeah. of the performances, the music, the drama, the tension going up to 11 and leaving you in a place where you feel absolutely devastated that you've got to wait another week. Thankfully, these days, you've got it all on DVD, so you don't have to wait a week. But yeah, no, it's, but it's you should. Great. These DVDs should come with a, like a, you know, DVDs are amazing pieces of technology. And what they should do is have a little trigger inside the disc that tells the machine that you're not allowed to watch the next episode until at least 167 hours and 35 minutes have passed. I've got one of those devices. Have you? Mm. What's it called? Mrs. <laughs> yes. I thought you were going to say pain. Uh, she's good as gold. She's good as gold. <clears throat> Better just say that. But you're only allowed to watch one episode a week anyway. As <laughs> <laughs> well. What with that and children? It doesn't happen anyway. But yes. yes. I haven't watched Doctor Who since 2007. I'm not even allowed to watch the new episodes. What? No, I have to. When I, I review them for Starburst, but here's the thing. I just go on the spoiler sites and read loads of spoilers and then write a review about the spoilers that I've read. Yeah. And it yeah. turns out the spoilers were wrong and you just come out with complete and utter nonsense. Oh, but I never find out that they were wrong because I write the review and then I move on to the next week's episode. Oh, fine. You never actually read the responses to your work. Oh, my God. When a writer starts reading the responses to his work and you know who I'm talking about. I thought you wrote the reviews like three years ago and then they read the reviews and build a story around it. Oh, no, that's what Stephen Moffat does now. Oh, right. I'm talking yeah. about back in Russell T. Davis. 
In fact, Stephen Moffat is in that box with Lee, making notes as we speak of things he can tell Russell T. Davis to put in his stories as well. Right, right. That's how it works. As a disclaimer, I should point out that I don't write the reviews for Starburst at all. It's a load of crap that I'm talking. Anyway, shall we move on? Yeah, it's not. you don't want to get, get the rap for anything else from Starburst. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, of course I do write the reviews for Starburst, but I don't have anything to do with Starburst Magazine's Twitter feed. Right, we should probably move on to Tom Baker, shouldn't we? Yes. Okay, anybody nominate a Tom Baker cliffhanger? Did you nominate a Tom Baker cliffhanger there, Well, Lee did just now, uh, didn't he? No, I didn't. Oh, no. Did didn't... you nominate a Tom Baker cliffhanger? I can't remember. Tom Baker, the doctor with more cliffhangers than any other doctor put together. And two of you did not nominate a single cliffhanger from Tom Baker. No, no. Well, I would like to address Scar that. off, I will throw in the air. Oh, no, well, I did as a, as a, um, uh, a sub. Reverse. At the end. Yes, Hand of did. Fear. Yeah, but you can't have a sixth choice. Oh. <laughs> Go on, though, actually. You have now mentioned, you've brought up Hand of Fear episode Hand one. of Fear, but again, it's that iconic imagery. Mm. And it goes with memories. The hand. The hand moving. In the box. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You knew it was going to yeah. happen, and then it did. You knew it was going to happen, and you knew it was going to happen from the minute you saw the episode title. Yes. And about five minutes into the episode, you first get to see the hand, stone hand. And even if you hadn't picked it up from the episode title, you've still got 20 minutes then, knowing that at some point that hand is going to start twitching. Mm-hmm. And when it does... <clears throat> That's actually, yeah, that's a great, great cliffhanger. I did like Lee's choice as well, going back to the Tom Baker ones. Yeah, did we, have we actually heard him yeah, talk about it yet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, talking about have. Sutek. Oh, yes, but he also it's, brought uh, up... There's his um, accent you couldn't understand. <clears throat> yeah, and his girly voice. He also brought up the Deadly Assassin. Yes. Well, I don't think he did in... No, we haven't heard him talk about that yet. But I've got his <laughs> list in front of me as well, so I know which ones he's going to talk about. So... Shall we ask Lee about the deadly assassin? Gotta love that toy train. Scared the hell out of me. The drowning sequence was a little too much in deadly assassin for kids. I agree with White House on that one, but I liked the shooting of the doctor and Peary in caves. That was a great cliffhanger. The shooting had me hooked good and proper. <laughs> See, what, Lee likes. What are Peary in caves? Perry. Perry. Oh, right. This yeah. is Welsh accent. <laughs> <clears throat> See, he likes the other cliffhanger in Caves of Androzani as well. Yeah. Caves of Androzani, Time Meddler, and Deadly Assassin, they're all stories that mm. have, you know, more than one iconic cliffhanger. I mean, a lot of stories are remembered for one particular one. Caves of Androzani is not just memorable for the third, which is the one that most people would choose, yeah. but also for the first first episode cliffhanger where they are shot dead with real bullets in front of your very eyes mm. and that's quite a quite a powerful image to mm. put before a seven-year-old kid yeah <clears throat> but coming back to deadly assassin <clears throat> of course and we've talked about this before so we don't need to go into it too much but the third cliffhanger in deadly assassin the one where the doctor's being drowned and it's talked about every time, isn't it? Yeah, but as Lee and I both mentioned a few weeks ago on this show, the cliffhanger that really worked for us was the one where the Doctor's trapped on a railway line. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> and it's the classic sort of silent serials, railway line mm. jeopardy. And then this 
bizarre, almost toy train <laughs> comes out round the corner out of the bushes, and there's a guy with a gas mask sitting on it, and it's just it's properly not, freaky. It is. It's taking something that's a staple of the cliffhanger genre and just turning it into something really freaky and bizarre. And that really lives in your head. Mm. I mean, you saw that. I think you're both too young, but if you saw that when you were, I don't know, I think I was seven when that was first on, to see that when you're seven, that train coming out of those bushes and that guy in the gas mask just really freaked me out big time. And that's what I like. I'm going to go back to Pertwee now because I've missed one of my choices. Oh, have you? Yeah. But this is what I like. The cliffhangers that so freaky, like the one in the War Games, the last thing that you would have expected on the other side of the fog would be a bunch of Romans. And, you know, the last thing you would have expected when Tom Baker's doing classic train track peril is to see what amounts to a toy train with a guy in a gas mask <laughs> on it. Carnival of Monsters. <clears throat> First episode cliffhanger in that. TARDIS has landed on an alien spaceship. Except from what we've seen so far, we see uh, a boat in the 1920s. Hmm. And I think, am I right in saying I think that's all we've seen by the end of the first episode? We so. haven't, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's right. And there's a secondary story going on whereby there are some aliens at um, a spaceport. And um, somebody's arrived on the planet and there's trouble over the immigration. Mm -hmm. And it's like a political thing going yeah. on that you don't really follow when you're a kid. When you're a kid, you just see there's something going on in an alien spaceport and then the Doctor's landed on his ship. And you're thinking, at some point, the Doctor's either going to leave the ship and come to the aliens or the aliens are going to suddenly decide to pack themselves into a spaceship and they'll land in the sea next to the ship or something. Mm -hmm. But you, you can understand that the two stories are going to come together. Yeah. But what you don't expect is for a bloody great hand to come out of the ceiling in the spaceship <laughs> and pick the TARDIS up between yeah. its fingers. That is one of those freaky cliffhangers that, <laughs> again, just so astonishing, unexpected, bizarre and surreal. Mm. It just lives with you. And... Like I was saying a few minutes ago, what's brilliant about it is not just that it's freaky and mad and, you know, eyeball popping, but also that it makes you think back over the whole of the previous 25 minutes and reassess how you had been fitting it together mm -hmm. in your head. And those are the cliffhangers. It's a, it's a shame, isn't it, in these cynical and tr contrived days, you just couldn't do that now. No. Uh, with the internet, you would have enough spoilers to know that... Mm. The, TARDIS had landed in like this miniscope and been reduced in size. Mm. You couldn't get away with telling that story. Not with that cliffhanger, not in that way. Which you're right, that is a shame. Mm. But you know, you still, you, there's still scope for the occasional sort of jolt out of the blue cliffhanger. Yeah. I think. And maybe we'll have one one day, who knows. Uh, they, in the new series, they have pulled off at the end of the Christmas special when Car Catherine Tate turned up. Yes. Yeah. See, that was one. I mean, it, you know, you then had to wait. How long was it? Four months for the resolve. <laughs> but that you didn't mind that because nah. you weren't left hanging halfway through a story. You were just given like a little, uh, a little teaser for a story to come. Mm. But that was a good example of them pulling a cliffhanger out of the blue. Right. We've well, we've done pretty much uh, 
Tom Baker, Peter... Oh, here's the choice. Simon's choice. Mm. And I think this is about the last one we're going to get to. There's one more after this, but the uh, Simon's fifth Doctor choice. Earthshot. Yeah. Again, I'm surprised, actually, that not more of us mentioned that. Yeah. It's the whole return of the Cybermen. And Mm. going back to the cynical, you're saying about the days of spoilers, but before then... They managed to keep it quiet that the Cybermen were coming back. I mean, I think there were there were minor rumours, weren't there? But well, no, I don't know. I, I was too young, I think, to really know much about that kind of thing. All I knew about doc, behind the scenes of Doctor Who was Doctor Who magazine, and they wouldn't have given it away. No, but I t- I have a memory of the time, which says to me that the Radio Times was held back a day that week because the Radio Times had a listing for the following week's programmes right, and would have mentioned the Cybermen. I don't know if they would have held back a magazine like the Radio Times for a day for that, but I seem to remember that it didn't turn up on the day I expected it to. Right. And that episode went out that night, and then the following morning I bought it, yeah. and the Cybermen were in there. I could be remembering that completely wrong. No, no. But that's what I remember. But then, like we've said before, the memory cheats, doesn't it? Mm. I, t- I just remember sitting there, watching the TV on my knees and then jumping up and down on my <laughs> yeah. knees saying, it's a Cyberman! It's a Cyberman! It's a Cyberman! Yeah. I remember being very excited about that. Yeah. Yeah, very excited. And the ridiculous, ridiculous thing is, you know, I'd must have been so young when I saw Revenge of the Cybermen. And yet... You the, knew who they were. Yeah, I knew who they were and I knew how important I think that was, was my first Cybermen story. Yeah. Because mm. I was a bit younger, I don't think I remember. Well, even though I was old enough to remember things like you know, Pertwee's last two series. Mm. Revenge of the Cybermen had wiped itself from my memory. Mm. Mm. Although, you know, there's obvious reasons for that. The thing is, how did I know? I know I love I Revenge of the Cybermen. <laughs> four? Was it 75? 74, uh, 70, 75, Revenge of the Cybermen. 75, yeah. Yeah, it's my, first season. Yeah, yeah. So I would have been four, four years old, the last hey, time I'd seen the Cybermen on screen. Plenty and yet... Did you have any of the books by then? Or maybe no. it started buying the magazine? Weetabix cards. Oh, Weetabix cards. <laughs> there you go. But that's all it takes, isn't it? Yeah, and especially the Weetabix cards. Things like that yeah. then, when there was so little of that, you were those things, those drawings on the, you know, the creatures that they chose to draw mm. on those cards, mm. they imprinted themselves on your memory in a way that nothing else has done since, didn't no. they? No. Astonishing. Speaking of Cybermen, though, <clears throat> now that Mark and I have run out of all our choices, yeah, we go home. Yeah, come on, let's go. All right, we'll leave Simon to it because he's got one choice left. So I've we'll got a lead to keep me company. Though. Hello. Oh well, speaking of which, I loved Curse of Fenric's cliffhanger when the wheelchair guy's eyes glow red and he says something like, "We played a contest again, Doctor." That was a moment that restored my faith. It's because I was a teenager and it seemed to have more guts to the storytelling. Of course, now I look at it and it seems to be a mismatch of undeveloped scriptwriting with too many good ideas, meaning that the writer has plainly lots to offer, but he was maybe not so good at telling the story coherently. Give him ten years in the business and that could have been an amazing story. As it is, it is pretty good. It convinced me to try Sylvester again. So I did through the Target books, then on to the Virgin novels. Dragonfire was the absolute worst cliffhanger for me. Whatever was in the script never made it into the action on TV. What were they thinking? The idiot doctor climbs over a cliff edge and hangs by his stupid umbrella. My name is Lee. 
And those were my cliffhanger choices. Bye. Oh, there's lovely. Thank you, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> what were they thinking? Oh, brilliant. This stupid umbrella, was uh, it? My apologies to any Welsh listeners out there. We are very sorry. Know, that wasn't our choice. <laughs> it's him in the box it doing is. this stuff. Yeah, Lee, how could you? That was not a conscious choice by us. Clay no. brought up Curse of Fenric, but I'm happy to skip over that. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> let's skip over the Curse of Fenric. <laughs> and we've already talked about Dragonfire, so, you know, thanks for your last contribution, Lee, but thanks very much. Okay, moving on. Mm. Simon, we were talking about Cybermen. Yes. And Cybermen stories with great cliffhangers. Yeah. Any other Cybermen story with a great cliffhanger that you'd possibly like to bring up? <laughs> well, yeah, technically it's a Cyberman story. It's but a story it could have been Cyberman any monster, yeah. whatever. Um, and the cliffhanger has absolutely nothing to do with the story that's gone before it. Oh, in that case, let's not bother talking about it. No. But I was JR. <laughs> yeah, I was Mark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on. But, but, Put people but, out of their misery. But, look at his little <laughs> face, a poor chap. They can't see his face. We're on a podcast. I'm talking to you. Oh, okay. Well, there's yeah, no point in bringing that up with me. People can hear this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not have a domestic in the middle of the year. Okay, Simon. Tell us about on, the Rise of the Cybermen cliffhanger that you like so much. Then. Rise of the Cybermen? No, I don't think it was that one. Closing time. Closing oh, have I got the wrong yeah, story? Oh. oh, dear. It was me. a Cyberman story, though, but yeah. This is what happened when Lee doesn't turn up. It just all goes pear-shaped. He's here. It? He's in the box. He's talking Welsh. Hello. Well... <laughs> With Stephen Moffat. <laughs> he is. Um, yes, closing time. The They're having a Gallic old the time. They've stuck on the end. But again, it's the iconic thing. It's the yes. image of River. Mm, yeah. Under the water. In the spacesuit. And, uh, yeah, there we are. <laughs> 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 and on that... <laughs> no, okay, let's go back to that cliffhanger. Because <laughs> a lot of people... Well, for me, I, yes, I got what they were doing with that cliffhanger, but it's, was it not too much information too quick? <laughs> Isn't that Moffat in a uh, nutshell? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I think that's. I think a lot of people have a problem because that, that is quite a long. At the end of that episode, there that. That cliffhanger is something like three or four minutes, isn't it? Mm. It's almost like it's a prologue. Yeah, yeah. So in, in essence, it's not a cliffhanger. But I think again, I know, it's I was, still a cliffhanger. I was sticking with the iconic imagery, and I think that's what about quite Amy waking up pregnant in a box? Yeah, no, I thought about that. Boxes. I thought about that. You'd better go and check on Lee then, and make sure he's not pregnant. Yeah, this is true. Otherwise, he's going to wake up in that box in a very funny mood. <laughs> <laughs> Hormones. But what about then the um, Amy, I'm your daughter? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Did you but know? But it wasn't, it wasn't bang, was it? It wasn't. No. No, see, I quite like that. I, a lot of people complained about that cliffhanger and thought their previous week would have been a better place to leave it because it was Amy waking up in the box. But then, to me, you would have left the at a sort of mid-story point mm. for a whole summer, four months or whatever it was. And, you know, Doctor Who still is aimed primarily at children. That would have been a horrifying place to leave children yeah. for, yeah, like, true, several months. Whereas the following week, the cliffhanger being um, 
Melody's uh, Melody um, River Song saying to Amy, "I'm your daughter," mm. and then the Doctor going off to fetch the baby to try and find the baby, mm-hmm. which is vaguely speaking, the Doctor's part in that cliffhanger is a bit like uh, Christopher Eccleston in Bad Wolf, Rose, I'm coming to get you. Yes, and he's like Melody, I'm coming to get you. Mm. But the, I mean, did you know that River Song was going to be Amy's daughter? Had you had that spoiled? Because I know a lot of people knew. I hadn't read the spoilers, but as you were watching you the episode unfold, it. you kind of you could kind of see it coming. You figured it during the episode? Mm, yeah. Oh, during the episode is mm, good, because mm. then you just want it confirmed, and it's pretty yeah. quick. I mean, it, to me, if you're putting it up with the other cliffhangers, I can, I can see your point about, obviously, people having to wait that length of time until the next episode, but it seemed more like the end of an episode of EastEnders rather than yes. the end of an episode yes. of Doctor Who. Yeah, but this the middle-aged woman telling the young woman that she's a daughter. No, yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Mm. What what I liked about it, I don't think it's classic, and I haven't picked it in my five, and I wouldn't pick it in a 10 or probably even a 20 maybe, but I still think it's good and it works. But what it does is it resolves the first half of the series, which is what you, what you don't realise is that the first half of the series is building you up to find out who River Song is, and then the second half of the series tells you who River Song is. Mm. And at the same time, the first half of the series is, and you don't realise this until you get there, building you up for the point where Amy has a baby and it's stolen away from her. And then the second half of the series kind of resolves the issue of what happens with the baby. Mm. Of course, you've already had the ch- baby as a child way back in the first episode. Mm. Yeah. But you don't know who the child is until that halfway point. That cliffhanger is not so much a cliffhanger in the sense of an ordinary cliffhanger says to you, we are leaving you with a mystery or a peril or a you know, jeopardy. Mm. And you've got to tune in next week to find out what. Because it's not a cliffhanger into a week's wait. Mm. It's a cliffhanger into several months' wait. Mm. What that cliffhanger does is say, right, that part of the story stops dead here. And now, with certain things resolved, but with not everything resolved, you, what you need to do now is be looking forwards to, in three months' time, a whole new spin on the story that you've been watching. Mm. It kind of sets the second half of that series up as like the first half with an extra dimension and the resolution as to the relationship between the characters and the disappearance of the baby. And you need the resolution to the doctor's death. Mm. You know, that's coming and you need the resolution as to what happened to the baby. And you know, that's coming so you have one resolution, but you've got kind of set spinning two more questions. And what that cliffhanger does is it says, right, first half over, second half to come. Mm. And I think it works really well at that. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't say, you know, you're going to have to wait three months to find out something specific. Yeah, yeah. Although when they bring up the title, coming next time, let's kill Hitler, that was cool. Well, that's a tease. Yes. Yeah. That was cool. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. That's a fantastic episode title. Very slutty, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) So we're looking forward to some more very slutty titles from you very soon. Right, shall we wrap it up then? Yeah, go on then. uh, Got to go and check on Lee, haven't we? Yeah, got to punch some air holes. (laughs) 
Well, I don't want to start thinking about Stephen Moffat and Lee Rawlings being in a box together, punching each other's holes. Thank you very much. so much oxygen between them. <laughs> Is there so much space between them in that box? Seriously. I was JR. I was Mark. I was Simon. My name is Lee. And we'll see you next time. Bye. You can contact us by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. 